and welcome to None of My Business. I'm Michael Jackett. This is a business podcast, but mainly it's about people and their business. It's driven by my own curiosity and passion for learning from every conversation. Michael Fox, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Good to catch up. Yeah. Mate, it's great having you on. Um, you, I think the, the background for those that will watch the snippets on things like LinkedIn and Instagram will um, give away a bit of where you're coming from and also the hat. The people that are listening, they're, they're still <laughs> going to wait for the intro. That um, Fable Food Co. is the brand that you co-founded and currently run. Um, and we're going to, you know, I'd love to dig around in that. I've, as I said to you in my, when I reached out to you, I've been a customer for a, a long time since I got the, uh, got the first pack in the, uh, Marley spoon box it was and I said what is this and um, and tasted it and I've never looked back since so, <laughs> awesome, um, Thank you. so Thank you. <laughs> it's a good product uh, how are you keeping up Were you keeping up with the US elections at the moment that's that's a hot oh, topic yeah yeah that's been a pretty crazy 36 hours oh my gosh oh, mate, seriously this, uh, this, yeah, this will come good. out in a couple of weeks but we uh we're right in the thick of just seeing what sort of um road the u.s yeah. will go down in the next yeah, four years exactly. yeah, um, yeah. but michael do you want to just give me a bit of a um just a bit of an up like a review a top line on you know fable and what you do there and where, where it started yeah yeah cool so um i've been vegetarian for five uh, yeah, coming up to five years now so for me a mix of kind of ethical environmental and health reasons in that order um I'd, I'd done a fashion business fashion technology business for the last 10 years called shoes of prey um been living in los angeles um do, doing that i finished up that business two and a half years ago now took a kind of six month break um thinking through what i wanted to do next uh ended up because I was vegetarian, just ended up reading more about, you know, I was just interested in that space, ended up reading more about industrial animal agriculture, got very passionate about the idea of wanting to help contribute to ending it. Mm. Um, a few of the kind of stats that got me, um, got me pretty uh, sort of fired up to do that. Um, it's responsible, for, animal agriculture is responsible for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's responsible for use of 38.5% of the world's habitable landmass. That That number kind of, I didn't, couldn't believe that at first, like mm. really like 38 and a half percent of the world's habitable landmass animal yeah. agriculture. Yeah. But it's because uh, there's a lot of it's great, great grazing, animals grazing, but actually a lot of it is growing the crops to feed factory farmed animals. So most of the meat that's eaten around the world today comes from factory farmed animals. Mm. And most of the world's crops that are grown today aren't fed to humans. They're fed to animals to be then be fed to humans. Yeah. And the problem is that a, cow uh, needs to eat 12 kilograms of plants to produce one kilogram of beef yeah. pig needs to eat eight kilograms of plants to produce one kilogram of pork so it's a really inefficient way of producing food and it's mm. yeah, it means we're using you know we've had to clear a lot of forest and everything to yeah to, absolutely um, so i'm 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 really interested in the journey that people take in getting to often this kind of, you know, role, whether it be a CEO of a, of a company they founded or, or, you know, are just part of, um, or in your case, a company you, you helped found, but just that pathway, that, that pathway to get you to that point. And I think, you know, um, Fable is clearly a purpose-driven business and, you know, fits nicely into that category of those, you know, nice juicy conversations I love having. Um, but I'm also really interested to sort of, sort of step out a little bit just take a step back and and go and dig into a little bit of your experience you know as early as 
you know, coming out of uni, what you thought you were going to do versus where you might have gone and, you know, just how those sort of things and generally they're these sort of compounding experiences that get to a point to, you know, where you've started a business like this. But I, I'm really interested in that sort of journey, sort of mapping that out a little bit for, because yeah. um, I mean, I, I do that in my, I feel like I've got my own personal journey. I feel like everyone that I talk to, they've, you know, they often downplay their own careers and stuff, but everyone's got their own little story. And I'd just be interested to sort of listen to yours a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, good one. So yeah, I grew up in, actually my dad was a mining engineer, grew up in mining towns. Um, uh, and then kind of did a few years in Melbourne during high school and then finished high school in Brisbane. Um, yeah, moved to Brisbane when I was 15 and then spent the next 10 years in Brisbane, so finished high school, went to uni, studied commerce and law at the University of Queensland. Came out of that not really having a good idea what I wanted to do. I hadn't really spent a lot of time sort of having fun at university and getting involved in all the student societies and different things um, and partying, I guess. Uh, and so I kind of, commerce law degree, I sort of, my understanding of the world was that if you finished those two degrees, your options were accounting firm, investment bank or law firm. And um, I'd done, uh, you know, summer internships at uh, an accounting firm and an investment bank and mm. didn't like either of those things. So <laughs> I hadn't done one at a law firm. That seemed to be the only thing left. So I went to um, yeah, one of the big national law firms, um, Clayton Newts, yeah. as, as a kind of trainee solicitor. Um, yeah, I realized two months into that, but that wasn't, that didn't suit me either. Um, uh, and uh, I stayed until I got kind of qualified as a solicitor at the end of the year, but um, yeah, pretty pretty quickly into my time there, I realised I needed to go do something else because I wasn't enjoying this. Fair um, enough. And yeah, and so I'd, I'd I'd like I'd get I'd get to the end of the day at work, and I'd um, get on the train to go home, and I'd be reading like Business Review Weekly at the time. I don't think it exists as a magazine magazine format anymore. But yeah. I'd be reading about all these like different businesses and startups and things in in Business Review Weekly. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of online equivalents of that today maybe smart company or some of those sort of publications yeah um, and yeah i realized i was that's what i was you know that's what i was reading in my spare time so that's what i was mm. passionate about so then i yeah sort of went out and talked to a few different companies to kind of understand well what happens in these companies what kind of jobs are there um yeah might suit someone with a commerce law degree and really no life uh experience or understanding yeah um and then i i super cheap auto was based uh in brisbane and yeah, ended up meeting the ceo of super cheap auto and they were looking at starting a grad program um, so I thought, okay, that's perfect. Like, you know, big, decent sized retail business. Um, at the time it was about 300 stores and sort of half a million, half a billion in revenue. Yeah. Um, a couple of thousand people. So was Chris, Chris Wildsmith there. there at that point? He was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, I had him on there. a few episodes. Well, yeah, he was on, ah, cool. um, episode eight or nine or whatever it might've been. Ah, yeah, um, awesome. yeah. So oh, he's a go. great guy. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He was sitting um, in a quarantine hotel in New Zealand when I was talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Damn. Yeah, but I know, but obviously I, you know, chatted to him a bit about Super Cheap. It's, um, yeah, I've had a little bit to yeah. do with them over the years in my own, you know, career yeah. and point of sale and marketing, working in with trade marketing teams. But um, yeah, yeah he, he, I, I love the Super Cheap business. So I went to one of their, yeah. um, conferences up on the gold coast and you know awesome. like just was able to see how they worked in with their supplier their group of suppliers and you know it was a it was a fascinating business yeah yeah and it really is and and has done so well over the last kind of 15 20 years um yeah. since, since they listed about 15 years ago and 
Um, uh, yeah, it was an, and, and it was an amazing place to do a graduate program. And, and at the time, it was like a perfect size because over two years, I kind of worked through all the different departments in their business, kind of worked with the buying team for three months and supply chain and yeah, everything from working in the warehouse to understanding their supply chain strategy and then um, managed a, a retail store over Christmas. And um, so it's very kind of hand, yeah, hands-on as, as well, then through kind of HR, finance, the IT uh, departments and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a really good sort of thorough understanding of a good sized retail business. Yeah. Um, I ended up in, uh, the, at the time they were just kicking off um, a business that's subsequently closed, but Gold Cross Cycles. It was, oh, yeah. they'd, they'd launched BCF uh, yeah. and then they were working on Gold Cross Cycles. And I, I really wanted to go and work, join that team after the grad program, um, mm. but they only had two people on it because I wanted to do a startup internally, basically. Yeah. Um, but they only had two people on it and they couldn't justify a third person. So mm-hmm. unfortunately I ended up in kind of a merchandising data analyst role, which was not at yeah. all what I didn't. So what, what sort of was drawing you to the gold cross opportunity? Was it that it was a new brand and you liked the idea of, you know, being part of that initial team or was there something yeah. other? You know? Yeah. I think I love, I love the, the idea, yeah, the idea of building something new and starting from scratch and thinking through all the different elements of the business, like, yeah, how's, what's the, pro- the merchandising product range going to look like? Who are yeah. the suppliers we're going to source that from? Yeah, what's the, what are the stores going to look like? What's the brand going to stand for? Who's the target customer? Just mm. all of those pieces. I was kind of fascinated by all of those pieces. And mm. um, yeah, just that kind of really, really drew me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting for them where I've ended up going. Um, yeah, yeah. Probably- it's an interesting... It, yeah. no, just it just on the grad program it's i just as you're sort of talking i'm like it's such an amazing opportunity for the graduate to go through these different divisions picking up knowledge across so yeah. many different facets of the business but i wonder from the business's perspective you know like that can be a there can be a lot of t- cost and even like opportunity costs in having people sit in roles that sure you're not going to come at the cost of a you know a senior person within a business but um you know, like they still have to, you still assume a role where you don't have mm. the knowledge and you're learning on the job, essentially. Um, mm. You're bringing, obviously, a commerce law degree, but you're still learning all those different areas of HR and all those things you described. So it's a, it's interesting, you know, and now as a CEO, I just wonder if you reflect on the benefits of having a graduate program or something like that for the business. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because like in... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I did contribute some things in the two years I was there, yeah. but not a, not enough to cover my salary compared with if I'd been in a role where, where I'm, you know, accountable to goals and targets and performing a specific function. So mm. it, it wasn't um, a benefit just have just having me on the grad program. But the idea was I'd learn all these different parts of the business and then settle in somewhere. And yeah, having the commerce law degree background was a bit different to a lot of the other people on the team. And then having had that experience across the whole business. The theory was I could then settle in a role and add a lot of, you know, just you, know, you want a good on any team you want a good mix of skill sets. So yeah, I wouldn't yeah. have the kind of ten years in the business uh, in the retail business type experience like some of the other people, but I'd bring a different mindset into yeah. it. Um, so that was the idea and the objective, but it just didn't end up panning out like that. Um, yeah. I think because the, the CEO that hired me, he left halfway through the program, right. and the other people who were there and took over were good. I just think that they had a different kind of mindset on the approach yeah, of how they wanted to run the business. And so, yeah, I just ended up in a role where I wasn't, they, they actually would have been better off with someone else who had more data analytical experience to be doing that role. And yeah, someone who like me, I just, that's not, not I'm, yeah, sure. I'm and it reminds me of that, that yeah. quote of, um, 
you know, like that idea of training your staff, like that's essentially what they were doing. They're training you, yeah, giving you a yeah, broad yeah. experience to go, well, if you end, if we can yeah. get him to end up in a role that's really important to the business strategically, he at least has a broad spectrum knowledge yeah. of all of those different things we've taught him. I, yeah. I remember that quite like, you know, someone, the finance people come to the CEO and say, you know, what if we train all these people and then they leave, you know, and then the CEO turns around and says, what if we train them and what if we don't train them and they stay, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, what yeah. we've got a whole lot of, you know, so that, that is there and lies the, you know, the, the thing about training staff and investing in your yeah, own staffing yeah. group is that, you know, if you yeah. don't have that, you bring their knowledge up and yes, some of them might go, but if you, if you, if you don't have people that know what they're doing, then you've got a business that, doesn't know what it's doing, you know? Yeah. And I think in hindsight, they would have been better off um, spreading the investment that they made in me across maybe five, five or six other people, giving them like smaller amounts of training and yeah, people who've been 10 years in retail, get them doing some course, external course on accounting or merchandising. And, yeah. and I think that's where that, what they ended up doing. I was the first and only grad. I don't, yeah, know, right. I don't know what they're doing now, but they hadn't yeah. done another one five years after <laughs> me. So. Oh, you read those rewards. <laughs> I was, I read the rewards, but yeah, I, I was clearly, a, it was clearly a fail. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, well, you know, it's good for uh, you. I <laughs> good stay, yeah, it was good for me. I, I stay in touch with uh, lots of the people from there, even, uh, even though it's like, 15 years later or 13 years later now. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, I still catch up with quite a few of them actually. Um, good so one. Really, yeah, really good group of people. And yeah, really, it was, it was an amazing learning experience for me. And I think that did help set the direction for where I've gone subsequently. Mm. Yeah. So you moved from super cheap, I think I saw it to Google. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, after I ended up in that data analyst role, which uh, wasn't a fit for, for anyone, um, I yeah, ended up taking a sales role at Google. So I'd sort of, had a friend who'd gone to Google and um, yeah, Google were, at the time I applied, there were about 30 people in Australia. So really early stage. Mm. Um, yeah, just I've been doing reading about the tech space in the, in the you know, Silicon Valley sort of tech space, just a little bit of getting into that and reading about that and found mm. all that fascinating. Um, and so ended up applied for a marketing role at Google. I didn't get that. And then I ended up getting a sales role at Google. Um, and yeah, then spent two and a half years at Google, uh, selling AdWords uh, in the sort of early days of AdWords. Wow. Um, easiest product to sell ever <laughs> at that time because it was super low CPCs of everyone was getting an amazing ROI. Could almost yeah. just yeah, sit back and an answer the emails and the phone calls and oh, yeah, get all your love that. targets. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of role, that's the kind of sales job you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. And I, and I like thoroughly enjoyed it and yeah, got a lot of good opportunities in there. So I spent some time in the US headquarters and some time in their um, European office and then got promoted and was managing a sales team. Um, so yeah, kind of really, really kind of enjoyed, enjoyed sales. And I guess it kind of got me into that sort of tech, uh, mm. health, Silicon Valley sort of tech culture sort of scene in the, in the mid 2000s. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was really fun. Yeah. yeah, so you've gone from a major retail, even though Super Cheap has significantly grown in the last 10 years, but major retail player, you know, a big up and coming retail player, you've gone to a tech, you've done a tech play. If you yeah. sort of, are you sort of finding your niche, if you like, or you're finding where your sweet spot is in what you want to do and that type of, you know, whether or not you want to be in retail or tech or, you know, B2B yeah. or whatever, what it is, you know? Yeah, well, that that exactly that thinking exactly led to, um, you know, I at Google for two and a half years. The GFC hit, um, 
they they kind of buckled down on on their business, and so a lot of the you know the things I was learning a lot from and, and enjoying, like traveling to overseas um, offices and different things, they cut back on all of that, and they introduced some. They removed them shortly after, but uh, it kind of they introduced a few things that put me off. Like you had to be in a role for a minimum of uh, two years before you could get promoted, and then they introduced all these levels. And so my boss was like 10 levels above me on the ladder. So it's going to take me like 20 years in a best case scenario to get to the level my boss was at. It's like, right. this make, actually, sorry, it was five levels up. So it's going to take yeah, 10 yeah, years. Right. Yeah. But I was like, I don't, I don't want to be doing sales for the next 10 years like yeah. this. Like, um, yeah. so I was like, this is the best, you know, the best company in the world to work for. And I'm, I'm not happy here. I'm clearly a, you know, I'm on the border of Gen X, Gen Y, but I'm clearly a Gen Y. Like I've got that, that attitude of like, this is, best place in the world and it's not good enough good enough for what i what i want um, yeah yeah so but then i think that interesting yeah. message to send like those, those tiered sort of um ultimately comes down to job title and remuneration though you know like these really structured things such an american thing i've worked a lot with general mills in over the past and they had a very similar sort of system where you're a, you're a 14 or you're 18 or you're a 20 or whatever it is um yeah. But yeah, from the salesperson or the employee's perspective, it can have that counterintuitive effect. It's like, well, yeah. I'm going to sit in this role for 10 years. Like, I don't even yeah, know if I yeah. enjoy it day to day. I was hoping to look at a promotion yeah. next year. Or yeah. It's, yeah. A, yeah. it's an interesting kind of process. Yeah. And with the benefit of hindsight, I could have, I could have been smarter about it and like looked for opportunities on other teams. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, was, I was performing well. Like I was getting good, good ratings on my performance reviews and everything. So I... There was ways around it. It was like, yeah, but I kind of didn't, I was I think I was too junior to really think all this through properly at the time. It's only now managing other people that I realized I could have had conversations with yeah. the same managers about it instead <laughs> of sitting there getting all mad and not telling, not talking to anyone. Getting <laughs> pissed off and leaving the company. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thinking about yeah, your resignation yeah. meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I was. I mean, I, in hindsight, I was a bit immature with all of that, and it could have done, could have gone about it in a different way. But it definitely did prompt me to think. Okay, well, I've always wanted. To, I've always been interested in this the startup space. I was reading about it. That's what I wanted to do with Super Cheap Auto. Um, and actually, working with I was working with a lot of the smaller advertisers on Google. So I was seeing a lot mm -hmm. of startups, um, you know, doing really well out of advertising on Google and launching businesses. And they were my customers. So I was talking to them every day. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I think that's what I want to go and do. I want to have a crack at something like this myself. Yeah, right. Which is, you know, you fast forward 15 odd years and you're like, startup is a word that's like, <laughs> it's like entrepreneur. It's like, it's a buzzword at the moment. Everyone yeah. wants to be a yeah. startup and everyone wants, yeah. is an entrepreneur. You know, but back in back back then, you know, like that was still a pretty new concept. Like that's a big sort of, I suppose it would, you know, our parents' generation or the generation before would sort of go, oh, yeah, you're just starting a business. It's, you know, it doesn't need to be given a label of a startup. But yeah. so, you know, so what is your thinking? Where do you turn there? Do you start going, all right, I need to find a partner or I need to find some people that I can do this with, you know? Um, yeah. What is the concept? What is What do you want to do? Where do you want to, where do you actually start? Yeah, yeah. So I'd had um, um, a mate of mine, actually the mate who, uh, encouraged me to come and join Google. He'd been at Google and um, we'd been kind of working on a few things just kind of on the side together, kind of just yeah. startup things on the weekend and both had got a bit of a sense of that's what we wanted to do. And he was a software engineering background. So um, we figured, yeah, let's 
let's do something together. Um, he, had he had the technical skills. Um, I kind of, I don't know what skills I had really, but I'd been at a retailer for two years and would be doing advertising sales. So I suppose I had a bit of retail and sales knowledge. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we were sort of thinking, oh yeah, let's, let's do something together. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I reflected on, I reflected on where I had skills and it was in retail and online marketing. So a logical fit seemed to be do an online retail business. Um, mm. you know, that space was, was very early on in Australia. Um, uh, the US was probably a good five or six years ahead and there were some good online retail businesses growing in the US. Mm. So we figured, yeah, why don't we start an online retail business in Australia? So that was kind of the first thought. Um, then the next thought was, yeah, what sort of product? Um, we explored a whole bunch of different things and then we kind of wanted something a bit unique and different so that wasn't gonna quickly get commoditized. Mm. Um, so yeah, then, then that's kind of when the, then the idea came came from a slightly different angle. So um, my uh, wife at the time, Jody, as well as my mum and sisters, whenever they would book holidays to Europe, they'd book stopovers in Asia. And there was, at the time, there was a little store in Hong Kong where you could go in and design your own shoes. Yeah. And so they'd go and design some shoes and um, come, you know, they'd go on their holiday, we would go on a holiday to Asia and, sorry, to Europe and then come back and the shoes would get delivered and they had all these really unique shoe designs and yeah. friends would see their shoes and go, oh, wow, those are cool shoes. Where'd you get them? Oh, I designed yeah. them myself and it kind of sparked this whole interesting conversation. Yeah. So that was sort of going on and then we had this idea of wanting to do an online retail business with a highly differentiated product. It's like, oh, why don't we do uh, custom women's shoes online? Let's take this concept um, out of a little retail, one single little retail store and see if we can do that online. Yeah, right. So, and did you look to any, I mean, there's the Hong Kong, you know, shop that does it, you know, which is, uh, which is one thing. And then there's, then there's taking that online and bringing it to a, a you know, to Australia, which isn't necessarily a, the most obvious fit, you know, what, what, were there any other companies out there work globally that you could sort of point to that were had a similar model and you were sort of like, look, we're going to take, you know, parts of this and we're going to adapt it for the Australian market. And we're going to, you know, take our experience and, and, you know, add that into like, was there anything or were you just going in the deep end? We've never seen this done before and we're just going to have a crack. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The latter. Um, no one was <laughs> right. doing it, which in hindsight should have been a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a warning for us, but we're like, what? No one's done this before. This is the best idea ever. Holy yeah. crap. This is yeah. going to be amazing. Let's go do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the naivety of business that's beautiful is totally. like when you go yeah. no there's, there's no one else is doing this this is an opportunity someone will be doing this soon we've got to do it now yeah let's go hard yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then if yeah. you think about reframe that and go why hasn't someone else done it <laughs> yeah yeah it's fascinating it's it's been a fascinating experience and i'm sure we'll come to it but yeah. thinking through starting fable compared with starting uh shoes of prey like yeah shoes of prey was 25 you know only a bit of experience working for other people you know had none of the kind of mental frameworks on how to apply to any of this sort of stuff, completely naive um, versus doing it the second time around now with Fable when I'm almost 40 and have yeah. a lot of uh, scars and, um, and learnings uh, that often the, a lot of them the hard way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. That's what yeah. you need though. I often talk yeah. a lot to people about, you know, this the idea that, that our learnings and our, you know, come through those scars that we build up over time and they actually are the best learnings, you know, as yeah, much as we would yeah. never sign up to saying, yeah, we're going to get cut down and hurt and we're going to get emotionally <laughs> scarred and, you know, like we'd never yeah. do it. 
but ultimately that's what we grow and that's yeah. how we grow. Yeah. So, totally. all right. So you're going in pretty green. You're starting something that, you know, you've, you've never done before as a, in your mid twenties, but you gave it a good crack. Like you're in that business for nearly 10 years, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much 10 years. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, whether you call it, you know, whether you, how, how successful are is for others to judge and for you to sort of make that, make your mind up. But like you, you, it, you were in it long enough to say that you, 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 there was, it was worth keeping on going, you know, like it was. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll to share the journey and I guess condense 10 years into, into three minutes. Um, we did really initially did really well in this niche of women who were very passionate about customizing their own shoes. Yeah. Um, and we actually didn't raise any money for the first two and a half years, just grew organically out of our own cash flow on a probably 2 million revenue run rate a couple of years yeah. in. Um, and we had all these, um, but we were, had like literally 10,000 women a day come into the website and maybe, uh, maybe 30 or 40 of those converting a day. So really, really low conversion rates. Um, but all these people who were interested, so we yeah. you know, started talking to those customers, ran some focus groups to understand who these customers were. And what we realized was we had a lot of mass market fashion customers who loved the idea of designing their own shoes, but weren't mm. buying. So we asked them, why, what would make you buy? And they told us basically three things. Um, firstly, they wanted shorter lead times. We had like a five week uh, lead time from when you designed to when you received your shoes, um, which worked for that passionate creative customer. She was willing to wait. Yeah. The mass market fashion customer was often ordering shoes for an event sort of two weeks out. So she yeah. said two week, we figured two weeks was a sweet spot. Um, mass market customer didn't want to pay the 30% premium we were charging for the same quality shoe. Again, the creative customer happy to do that, not the mass market customer. Yeah. And then thirdly, we had a very free form design experience, very kind of open, starting with almost a blank template for the, which the creative customer loved, mm. but the mass market fashion customer needed a lot more guidance and kind of wanted to start with an existing shoe and just modify that. Yeah. So we looked at those three things and we said, well, yeah, we can deliver that value proposition for the mass market customer. We're confident we can, but to do it, we're going to have to build our own shoe factory because our, our manufacturing partner wasn't going to be able to scale up um, to get the lead times down and the unit costs down. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to need to hire more user experience and software engineers to change the whole shoe design experience to simplify it. So to do those two things, we're going to need capital. So we went out and raised venture capital, um, and then, yeah, over the next five years, we raised uh, four rounds of funding. First round was sort of $3 million, then a $2 million top up, mm. then a $7.5 million round, then a, that was a roughly $25 million round was the last one. Wow. Um, and basically, we kind of, we grew, we executed on that plan and it took us about five years to you know, building a shoe factory in China, developing all the processes to make shoes efficiently one at a time, mm. uh, getting all the logistics and buying processes in place. Um, it was a really, it was a quite an amazing shoe factory in the end and like mm. 160 employees in there. And, and over the five years, we got the delivery time down from five weeks to 2017. We averaged 11 days from when you placed an order for your shoe to when you received it. We got our unit cost down. So we were charging $150 for a pair of leather, beautiful leather fashion shoes that you'd designed yourself. Yeah. Um, and it was a really simple design, shoe design experience. You'd the, the, the website looked like a normal shoe store with beautiful kind of models wearing shoes and you could click on one of those shoes and either buy that shoe or just tweak it. Maybe you wanted to lower the heel height or change the color or add a bow or something mm. to the shoe. So we delivered on exactly the value proposition that the mass market customer, um, that our research that the mass market customer wanted. 
Yeah. We did distribution deals. So we were, if you go into David Jones and design shoes on iPads in their stores, that went well. So we did the same thing with Nordstrom in the US. Yeah. Um, so you go on with Nordstrom, women, they're the biggest retailer of women's shoes in the US. You could go on their shoe floors, design shoes on iPads or branded shoes of prey. We mm. moved our headquarters from Sydney to Los Angeles to, to go and focus the US and become our biggest market. And we'd grown over the five years, we'd grown from that sort of 2 million revenue run rate to about a 12 million revenue run rate. So we've yeah. grown reasonably well, mm. but nowhere near the level that we should have grown had the value proposition been properly resonating. Yeah. You know, we should have been at 100 million revenue if, if our market research had been right and the mass market customer actually wanted this value proposition mm. that, she, that our research said she wanted. And mm. we needed to be at 25 or 30 million revenue to be breaking even because we now had all these fixed costs of the shoe factory and software engineering team and everything else. Yeah. And we're stuck at about 12 million revenue. And so now we built the value proposition. We could go and watch how consumers were behaving. Yeah. And what we could see was consciously the mass market fashion customer thinks she wants to customize if you ask her she'll say she'll she loves the idea um and yeah she'll tell you those three things are the things that she wanted uh needs to purchase yeah but deep down subconsciously um she didn't actually really want to customize her own shoes she doesn't really have the time for it doesn't really have the confidence to do it and mm. wants to really just see what's popular in fashion magazines and on instagram and just buy that, not only even buy that shoe, but buy that brand that's, yeah. that's popular at the moment, um, which is actually the antithesis of customization. So, yeah. and that's all in our unconscious, and it, we didn't draw that out in our consumer research. Yeah. Um, so what we built what she consciously wanted, which was actually the antithesis of what she subconsciously wanted. Yeah. Your subconscious mind is more powerful for decision-making behavior than your conscious mind. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we screwed up our customer research and that, uh, very easy to my do. Life and $35 million and <laughs> had to fire 200 people. And yeah, oh, it was, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. that's a, that's an epic journey. So, I mean, God, there is so much in there. Um, but I mean, just on that market research, like I coincidentally, that's, that's a lot of what I'm doing at the moment in my, in my career. I've landed in, yeah, I've awesome. gone from sort of retail and trade marketing and I've sort of landed in consumer research, but, and I love it. I, I think it's a, I was sort of pushed to that, just to talk about me for a second, <laughs> but no, I, was no, great, great. I was, um, I was pushed to, I was pushed to that because, um, I wanted to use, I wanted to get a more, a better grasp on how data, you know, like the world is driven by data as we know. So if, if you're yep. not, if you're not using data to, <laughs> to yep. inform your decisions, um, yep. you know, they can have, they can be wrong. They can, you, yep. you can, they can influence you in the wrong way. If you if you're not careful, as you've just explained, um, but if you're not at least using, you know, analyzing the data, then, you know, I, I had a lack of it in my career up to this point and I was sort of like, I'm really interested in that. So that's, that's why I've gone down this path. And I, but something that is really obvious to me is that behavioral science, um, layer behind the data. It's not just good enough to do research for the sake of research and go, great, well, here's our strategy for the next two years. So we'll come back and revisit this in a few years time and see where the, where the needles changed and whatever. Um, mm. there is so many facets to it and it comes down to experience of researchers and it comes down to knowledge of the industry and the category of those, re you know, the people that are around the researchers to help guide them, you know, because the researchers are often all about method methodology and they're often all about, you know, like the, the pure science or the pure statistical research side of things. But, yep. you know, as you know, better than I do, there is a whole lot around research is just one component of the strategy and the story behind building that brand. Um, so anyway, I love, I love 
that you no, I don't love that you've had that experience because that sucks. But, <laughs> but I love that you're talking about that experience, you know, and that's yeah. such that's one of those scars that you're saying you've taken into this yeah. business is, you know, you won't do that wrong again, you know, or you'll at least be you'll be cautious of it. You'll be you'll yeah, know where to yeah, yeah. you'll know where to look. Something that, as you were talking, um, when you were building when you were getting investment, when the VCs were coming on board and they gave you three, four rounds of investment, you know, were they obviously they, they can look to the growth over a short period of time to say that's really positive growth and there's a real, you know, there's there's genuine investment value there. Um, but then they're obviously looking to your forecasting, your strategy, your longer term strategy, where you want it to be a hundred million val, you know, business and your valve was based on that. Um, can you just sort of just touch a little bit on what those sort of conversations were and, you know, where they started to sort of go, oh, hang on, this isn't, this is not meeting expectation. You know, is there yeah. anything that you sort of think about around those discussions? Yeah. I mean, the vision for the business and, and had this have worked, um, like the vision was to, that this could kind of revolutionize manufacturing and particularly, mm -hmm. you know, starting with the fashion space at least because, you know, fa fashion is like, it's, it, the industry is so inefficient. It's like, try and forecast 12 months out what, what if the industry thinks is going to be popular next season, go and manufacture those products and invariably get those forecasts wrong so that the items that are more popular sell out. The items that aren't as popular have to get discounted at the end of the season. So, yeah, why you have sales at the end of the fashion season all the time. It's just impossible to get that demand forecasting right. Mm. And it results in a lot of waste. Um, and so the model here is like flipping that around where you're only manufacturing what people want. So you never run out of the popular items and yeah. you never have to discount and sell excess stock. Um, and, you know, that had all sorts of economic and sustainability type benefits if it worked, um, mm -hmm. but it didn't work. Yeah, so that was the vision. And that's what the investors were bought into that we could, we could you know, this had the potential to change the industry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the market research piece was, was wrong. Fascinating, isn't it? You know, you just sort of go, do the VCs do, I mean, they bring experience and they bring capital <laughs> but you know like they believed in the same they used the same consumer research they believed in the same strategy the same outcome nordstrom were not only a partner they invested in the business so they're the biggest retailer wow. of women's shoes in the united states and they believed it was going to work in to be fair in hindsight we were probably quite good at i think we were very good at sales so i think we passed yeah. half maybe even three quarters sold them on the idea of it working but they they have like these are the, these are some of the most experienced people in the shoe industry and they believed it would work and um yeah and and the, the problem was that with this too was no one had done it before so there was no data we couldn't go and look at a, an existing business model or value proposition to see it work it's mm -hmm. like these are this is the risk if you're doing something completely new that no one's done before um mm -hmm. if it works it can be amazing um but there's a you can't really get the market. The market research is harder um, because you can't just go and watch consumer behavior um, because yeah. it doesn't exist. So what was the linchpin? I mean, was there discussions around maybe we can pivot, maybe we can do something, we yeah, can try and meet the, meet the customer <laughs> on what she wants and, you know, yeah. move away a little yeah. bit from customization and give them more options, you know? Yeah, all of that. Yeah, all of that. And, and like, are there some other niches that'll be big? Like we were doing well in wedding shoes. Can we do more of that? How big yeah. is this creative customer niche? Uh, extended sizing, like we could do small, large, wide, and narrow sizing because it was all made on demand. Uh, we looked mm. at that sec, that space. Um, yeah, can, can we pivot into just a normal shoe brand doing regular shoes? All sorts of paths, but none of them 
uh, yeah, none of them really. Uh, the scale. None of those niches were, were big enough to, for what we were doing. They're, they're big enough, but not easy enough to pivot into in the timeframes that we needed to. Um, yeah, so yeah, ultimately. And then we tried, so we then tried to sell the business. Um, challenge there was we were actually a very complex business for our size. Like the things we executed on operationally, like we did all of that, all of that to plan and, and did all of that well. It's just that the value proposition didn't resonate. So we had this amazing factory in China that was producing super high quality shoes at really reasonable price, made on demand and customized. Um, and then we had this Western fashion brand, which was doing like 12 million a year in revenue. It's you know, not nothing. It's not, mm. not high, but it's not mm. nothing. Um, and uh, had this really unique kind of had all this interest. Like we got crazy amounts of PR for the size of business that we were. Yeah. Um, uh, so we, there were a lot of people who were interested in buying the business, but the challenge was um, no one could actually operate both halves of both those parts of the business. So any Western fashion brand loved the idea of the customization piece, but had they, they just buy from factories in China. They got no idea how to run a factory in China and vice versa. A lot of Chinese manufacturing companies were really interested in what we built with the factory, but had yeah. no idea how to run a Western fashion brand. So yeah. then it was like, could we sell the two halves of the business to two different people? But it's 100% supplier and customer risk because mm. if you buy the fashion brand, the only factory in the world that can make your shoes is our factory. And if someone buys that and screws it up, this business, the fashion brand's got no value. Yeah. And vice versa, the only customer of the factory at the time was the, sh the fashion the brand. Spray brand. Yeah. So if, if that gets screwed up, from whoever buys that, then the factory's worthless. So, so complex. I mean, anyone that I've lived, basically my job is I've lived in China, you know, for the better part of 15 years. Like, you know, oh, not, awesome. not physically, not, I, I've traveled oh, yeah. there more often yeah. you know, than I wish to, but, um, you know, I, I've just so much of what I've done coming through from a designer of bikes and retail stores and stuff for a big Spanish bike company all the way you know, into trade marketing and, and displays and all that sort of stuff. Everything just hinges on the China, on, on the, on China. Um, yeah. So I've done so much time up there and, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of explain to people that haven't had the experience and most have now these days, because China is such a big part of the back end of a lot of businesses, but um, you know, hard to explain just how complex it, you know, you can't just bolt on things in China and just say, oh, no, it's going to work because we're going to structure ourselves in Australia or, you know, in America or whatever it is like this. And it will just bolt on, you know, it takes constant, um, constant finessing, you know, and, and, and management. But do you think, um, do you think that, you know, you made the comment that it's um, West, like Chinese um, manufacturers can't just sort of pick up a Western brand and run it, you know, like that, you know, do you think that's changing? Like I, I, I get this sense that that is certainly on the, on the objective of a lot of Chinese manufacturers is to yeah. expand and actually have their own control and their own footprint in these Western countries, particularly Australia and America. But do you think that's yeah. changing even in the time where you left the shoes of prey business to now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you look in like the technology space and um, yeah, lots of mobile phone brands now are mm. actually Chinese brands and doing a really good job of the branding. Um, same and actually in a lot of electronic goods. Yeah. Hasn't, hasn't yet transferred over into something like fashion, which is probably at the kind of peak branding yeah. end, but I think it will over time. And, mm -hmm. and I guess Japan's a good example too. Like I feel like Japan's yeah. gone through the, the 
growth phase that China's going through just 20 years earlier. Um, and now you do have really good Japanese fashion brands and, and, and things. So I'm mm. sure it won't take, won't take long and that the Chinese will have nailed all of that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what they do is uh, again, in my experience going up to factories and you walk around like the design and development, you know, room de- department of these big factories and you're like, that's an Italian guy. That's a French guy. Yeah. <laughs> so they yeah, just totally. they just pull them all in. They just go, yeah. well, if we can't do it ourselves, we'll just pull in the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had an we had an Italian. Actually, he was Spanish, and he spent most of his career making shoes in Italy yeah. <laughs> as our head designer. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah, in China. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's the move from Shoes of Prey to Fable? Yeah, so yeah, we ended up closing down Shoes of Prey. Um, so yeah, two and a half years ago now, kind of mid, was that mid 2018. Um, so I took the second half of 2018 off, uh, kind of needed a, needed a break after that Shoes of Prey journey. And yeah. Um, yeah, as I was kind of touching on at the start, just got very passionate about, I've been veget- I'd gone vegetarian five years ago. Um, and in that six months off, I just ended up, re- I read about lots of different things, but kept mm-hmm. kind of coming back to, industrial animal agriculture and wanting to help contribute to ending that. That um, was the main living... driver to vegetarianism was the, the um, environmental. Yeah, it's probably ethical, ethical, environmental health. It was all yeah. three, but it, yeah. it, probably in that order. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, got very passionate about the idea of wanting to help contribute to ending that. Um, uh, and then was thinking through, okay, how can I best do that? You know, I tried to be vegetarian. I tried to convert everyone around me to being vegetarian. And I think I've convinced like two people in five years and <laughs> I caught up with one of them the other day and he's not even vegetarian anymore. So I'm a, I'm a pretty shit house activist. Um, so that's not my call. Oh, you've got um, one ally. You've got one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I should check in with him too. I'd probably yeah. ask him. Um, but everyone I would talk to like got the idea and like wants to reduce their meat consumption, but still loves yeah. the taste and texture of meat. And I've been living in Los Angeles, eating all the beyond burgers and impossible burgers mm. and could see and watching that, you know, just reading about those businesses too, and seeing the take up of those products from consumers. Mm. Um, and basically the, yeah, the theory is you just deliver to consumers what they want, which is the taste and texture of meat, but just make it out of something other than animals. Um, and so figured that's probably the best. Yeah. If I want to work on this mission, maybe I can, my skills into that space um initially i didn't want to go start another business i think i was i was fairly deeply scarred after shoes of prey and uh and it was like i think my confidence was down and uh so i came back to australia and i was like i'll find a meat alternative company to work for so yeah. i talked to them all everyone was a like two-person startup um or a few big companies doing it but you know having like half a person working on it uh, and no one was hiring a washed up entrepreneur with no food industry experience. Um, it's only so two kind of, years ago. Yeah, this is, yeah. This two and a half years ago. T- I moved back, Dece- yeah, actually I moved back December 2018. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Wow, that's um, amazing. So not even two years ago. Yeah, um, and so, yeah, so I kind of had a choice. I either go back and work at a corporate, like a Google or somewhere I was before, um, or if I want to do this meat alternative thing, I'm going to have to go start a business myself. And I kind of convinced myself, I still, I really genuinely felt physically ill about the idea of starting another business. <laughs> so I kind of managed to get over that by convincing myself, all right, there's no jobs at the moment, start another business, start a business. In doing that, you'll meet more people in the space. Then if a job comes up, you can see where you're at with your business you've started and maybe go take a job with someone else. So I kind of half got around it in my head yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, it's been, it's been a, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did kind of 
there was a potential job that came up sort of halfway through last year, but I was, I was kind of far enough down the track with Fable that I was, I was over the scars were scars were healing and I was feeling good about it. Yeah. Good. Um, and so you obviously you needed to, I mean, where did mushrooms come from? Like where did the yeah, journey yeah, yeah. to the mushroom? <laughs> the journey yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm a pretty healthy eater. Um, like shop at my local farmer's markets. I live on the Sunshine Coast now. Shop yeah. at my local farmer's markets, deliver my own cooking, bake my own sourdough, brew my own kombucha. And probably for the last 10 or so years, I've eaten a pretty clean label, whole food, minimally processed diet. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, don't always eat like that. You know, I'll get fast food sometimes and, uh, and that sort of thing. But when I'm cooking at home, try to be like super whole food, clean label as, as much as I can anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to develop a meat alternative that kind of fit with that, um, that sort of ethos. Um, mm. And I also wanted to develop a, didn't want to do another burger patty or mince because there were a lot of um, meat alternatives out on the market that were burger patties and mince. And basically it's because mo most meat alternatives are made from textured vegetable protein, mm -hmm. um, which is a yeah, particular ingredient that works well for meat alternatives, um, but it lends itself to burgers and mints um, mostly. Um, and then you generally need an artificial, you need, you need binders to hold it together. And, and most companies use like some artificial binders to, to, to hold it together. And, and it's a reasonably processed product. So I'll, yeah. I'll eat, I'll eat, the, I'll eat those. Burger patties and things when I'm out at a fast food burger joint, I think they're mm -hmm. still better than meat from animals, um, even from a health perspective. Um, or yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very sure that they are. Yeah. Um, but for my just for my diet, own diet at home, um, yeah, I, I I don't sort of cook with those products at home just because of my, my whole food based diet. So yeah, uh, yeah, wanted to do a whole food based meat alternative. Started no food industry experience, so I've been cooking my very 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 amateur chef. Um, at home, you love so a challenge, talking. don't you? you love, <laughs> here's, here's an idea I like, and I want to pair that with something that's never been done before. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of some people would call it insanity, but um, yeah, I, know, I don't know. But... I think I've got, I think I've got some weird, like, optimistic gene where I just feel like everything's gonna work out, which is right. good we need, sometimes. We but need lots of those bad other times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try to surround myself with uh, realists and the odd pessimists to kind of balance it out. <laughs> and it actually helps a lot. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. So then yeah, went, talked to some chefs. They put me onto the idea of using mushrooms as a base ingredient. So I went out and met with a whole, anyone who'd talked to me in the mushroom industry. Uh, and then through that met my two co-founders. Um, so Jim Fuller grew up in Texas, uh, fine dining chef for 10 years. Uh, wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking. So he went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science. And mm. he majored in mycology, which was mushroom science. And then he's worked as a mushroom scientist for the last 12 years. Wow. Um, so he's, he's, the, he's, he's the, the big hitter in the mushroom space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for doing mushroom meat alternatives, like chef and mushroom scientist in one human being. Yeah. Uh, he's still the only person we know of in the world who is a qualified chef and mushroom scientist. Wow. So, uh, small Venn diagram overlap of that skill set, um, right. but perfect for, for what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, and then Chris McLaughlin co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm and was 2018 Australian Organic Farmer of the Year. So between Chris and Jim, they know everything there is to know about growing mushrooms, the science behind them, how to cook them. Mm. And they, they plugged that uh, clearly massive gap that I had in <laughs> having no food or mushroom experience wanting to make mushroom based food products. So, yeah. um, but I came with the entrepreneurial skills and, um, and the, yeah, that, that sort of shoes of prey experience. Um, so yeah, we all met up, uh, got on really well, realized we had similar objectives and teamed up to 
to co-found Fable. Were they looking to start something? Were they, did you, you know, were they, because you've got to have the right people with the right appetite to get into business and to sort of go, we're going to take on the meat industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at least just start something that hadn't really been done before. Well, it was incredibly fortuitous timing. Um, Chris or Jim had been working uh, for Chris on his mushroom farm. Uh, and then they'd, ex- they'd Chris had just exited out of the mushroom farm and, and um, Jim had left with him. Yeah. And they'd just, start, they'd just started doing some basic R&D work on some mushroom-based meat alternatives when I met them. So yeah, great. They'd, Jim had gone vegan for a year, a couple of years earlier, and had been missing meat. So had just started experimenting just for himself, making mushroom meat alternatives. Yeah, right. um, and so, yeah, they'd had all the same thoughts and were thinking of going down the same, just started on the same path, basically. Yeah, so it was wow. like, couldn't have been better timing. Yeah. Gotta love that timing. There were, were there any uh, examples globally of people doing, you know, what you intended to do, even loosely for, with Fable? Um, yeah, I mean, so Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods in the US were doing really well, doing um, textured vegetable protein-based burger patties and, uh, and beef mince products. Um, then there are a bunch more new startups in the, in the US. Uh, there are quite a few big ones doing well in Europe. Uh, and then there are a few just getting off the ground in Australia. So yeah, it was quite different to Shoes of Prey in that I could literally go into Woolworths and there's a, a, seg- a bay in the supermarket that's got meat alternative products. And I could just stand there and watch how consumers shop the category yeah. which items they picked up and which they put back on the shelf uh, yeah. and then which ones they picked up and put in their um, in their shopping trolley uh, and then go up and talk to them afterwards and ask them questions about not just what they thought they wanted but why did you pick that one up and put it back on the shelf yeah. what was it about this one that you've taken to buy which ones have you tried before yeah. you know, a completely different uh, research experience than just asking people um, without actually being able to watch their behavior. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's been the big difference, at least on a consumer research, on the consumer research side of things is being able to watch how consumers behave. And I'll still go and do it. I'll still go stand in the, in the supermarkets and watch how customers are shopping the category. And yeah, it's probably a little bit creepy, but um, apologies. <laughs> no. to anyone I mean, it's, too, the, but, um, <laughs> I mean, it's almost, it's, it's the best kind of consumer research. Yeah. Cause if you can get people to tell you in the moment, you know, there's no yeah. lag effect between their decision-making and them answering those yeah, questionnaires yeah, yeah, or the, yeah. the re- or, you know, being part of the focus group or whatever. So it often is, uh, is awesome if you can get that kind of, um, yeah. you know, direct research. But I suppose what I'm wondering is, you know, the, the category is reasonably mature, as you've just explained. Um, it's, it's more just around, and, and then you, and you've also kind of talked around, you've found the perfect, almost the perfect couple of guys to, to team up with, um, you know, just use, have you, is any, was anyone using in a, commercial way or is it in a scale at a scale the mushroom as a you know as a meat alternative because that that's kind of that's something i had never seen before and i'm just wondering if if there were examples around the world that maybe that was happening no not really no well no no one certainly no one doing it at scale um uh in in asia they eat a lot more mushrooms than we do so in australia we eat three and a half kilograms of mushrooms per person per year whereas the average across Asia is 14 and a half kilos per person per year. It varies by country in Asia, but um, that, that's kind of the overall um, amount. And in Australia, we 
we don't eat many mushrooms and the ones we do eat are basically just fresh. Yeah. In Asia, most of what they, a lot of what they eat is fresh, a lot of it's dried. Um, and then they do some other value added work with mushrooms. So there's more value added mushroom products in Asia, which was interesting to go and look at, but not really any kind of meat alternative, uh, not certainly nothing scaled. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so I guess it was in, in some ways it's been a good balance between, okay, we're in a category where we can watch our consumers behave and we're not doing, we're doing something that's analogous to what's going on in the category, but we've got a, we, we are, we're, we're, we're targeting those same consumers that are wanting to reduce their meat consumption. Um, but we yeah, had a very differentiated, we've got a very differentiated product um, uh, that, yeah, yeah, it's got a quite, quite a different um, positioning in the market because mm-hmm. it's kind of clean label, whole food based, shiitake mushroom based. Yeah. Um, and we're replicating slow cooked meat. So yeah, the kind of beef brisket burger in my background image as a, and, and yeah, you've, you've tried it as opposed to a yeah. uh, beef mince burger. Yeah. yeah, totally. I make little meat pies or fable oh, meat, fable meat pies. I saw the, um, as I was saying that, I'm like, I won't be able to remember the recipe. It's the, um, anyway, it, I saw the recipe somewhere. They'd used the fable meat in the meat pies, put a little bit of Vegemite in it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to have a crack at those. <laughs> there yeah. they are. <laughs> oh mate they are that great is the, that's that vegemite uh what yeah. is a bit of vegemite in it yep. yeah they are very tasty i mean it takes Good on me you for bit. making those i've not made them myself yet i do the burgers all the time yeah yeah it takes a while like the you know yeah. I, I make about 10 pies and it you know it takes me a little while but you know you get oh, quick, i get quicker every great. time but Gee, yeah, they're, they're delicious. And then um, do you chuck them in the freezer or keep them in the? Do you eat them oh, quick enough to keep them? Yeah, in the yeah, they don't last for freezing. Because <laughs> <laughs> even great. the kids are into them. The kids love them. Yeah, like chuck a little bit good. of barbecue sauce on them, and the kids oh. bloody oh. They, they are they are frothing for them. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do it. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I like. I saw a recently McKinsey brought out a report. Um, what was it called? I wrote it down. Oh, McKinsey report, the future of food and meatless as a question mark. Um, and there was a little video, I haven't read the full report, but it was, it was, the video was interesting um, just around posing that question of is the future of food meatless and, or what does it look like? And there were different opinions and after, ultimately it came down to a um, geographical based, you know, like waiting around, you know, people in Europe, for example, there or or maybe it was specifically Britain, but anyway, they were more um, uh, conscious around environmental issues, whereas people in the US were more driven by health issues, you know, and, and, and environmental and sustainability sort of came very much as a secondary. They were still important, but very much as a secondary. So do you, as you, you know, in your, it's still a young brand, you're still kind of, you know, you've got a lot of scale and growth ahead of you. What do you what are you sort of looking, are you sort of looking to target a specific demographic or a, or a specific, you know, ge- geographically you're looking, are these your growth markets and, and, you know, because of those impact, but, you know, is the UK and Europe more of a market because of its, you know, eye for sustainability and impact, whereas the US, whatever it might be, or is it that health is actually a bigger driver because more people are concerned, concerned about themselves and, you know, yeah. we always, we all want to be healthier and fitter and looking better. Yeah. You know, what, are the, yeah. what, what comes into those decision-making processes around your marketing and your, and your positioning of the business? 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question and we're, we're spending a bunch more time on it uh, at the moment, sort of re-wrapping our heads around it and, and where exactly we're going to position. So, mm. so all of our, like all of our research and everyone else's in the categories research says that basically people buy, people buy food based on taste and texture and price. And in some segments of the market, it's taste and texture number one, price number two. In a lot of segments of the market, it's price number one, taste and texture number two, yeah. and then everything else is a distant third, fourth, and fifth criteria. And it's it's pretty similar in meat alternatives, right? So I mean, if you if health was your biggest driver, um, you know, you'd be eating salads and tofu and falafel balls and hemp seed patties. Yeah. And there's a small segment of the market that eats those foods, but people eat a lot more meat than they eat tofu and falafel balls <laughs> yeah. and empty patties. So clearly like the taste and texture of meat is a massive driver, even for the flexitarian customer, which is someone who still eats meat, but is actively trying to reduce their meat consumption. Mm-hmm. So taste and texture is number one. And at least for the time being, um, our positioning is like taste and texture first. So yeah. the front of our packaging is like, a, actually it's about to get updated in the stores, but it's um, going to be like a delicious looking image of the product being cooked um, we've got a quote from Heston Blumenthal, um, the, the British chef on the front of the packaging and, his, and, his, and a little picture of his face on the front of the packaging. So it very much mm. speaks to like, there's a high quality, delicious um, meat alternative. How did uh, that Heston thing come about out of interest? Yeah, so my two co-founders are, um, uh, yeah, the Chris and Jim with the mushroom background, they'd met Heston a few years earlier when Heston had been starting to learn more about the mu- and wanting to get into the mushroom space. Um, and so uh, we reached out to Heston middle of last year as we were kind of getting close to finishing development of the product and figured we'd get his, get his view on it and his take on it, see what he thought. And yeah, he, he loved it. And yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he was our first customer, started using it in his restaurants and we did our launch event at his, his Melbourne restaurant dinner by Heston, um, closed earlier this year. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it's been, been great. He's, he's, he's been awesome. I think the restaurant thing's a good, good point. Um, and f- you know, for me, being a fan of you know the product and just in general the the you know what it, the purpose behind the product and what it's actually contributing to, such a big driver I, I would think is to get it into that mainstream restaurant and cafe market. You know, and and yeah. you know, like the more the more it's adopted in, you know, in in this space and Fable, obviously that's your first priority because it's your brand, but just there will be other players that I'm sure can pop up along mm. the way. And the, as the yeah. category grows and the market grows, it's, you know, it's like um, electric cars, you know, like Elon couldn't do it on his own. So he needed everyone else to be producing electric cars to push forward the technology and get the infrastructure out there. And, you know, it's the more that it's adopted as a category and as a, as a food group, the more broadly it's going to impact the, the, the world. Um, yeah. But, you know, like how, how do we, how do you get it into, how do you get more people interested and people that at that decision-making, you know, that, that are actually able to put the food on the, on the menu, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the chefs and, and in like quick service restaurant chains and retailers, they're all seeing this demand from, the flexitarian consumer. So they're seeing people asking for more kind of vegetarian or plant-based items on the menu. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're directly seeing the demand for consumers. So they're looking, they want to fulfill that demand and they're looking for these products. Um, a lot of them have, you know, like Beyond Meat's done quite well getting into restaurants and, and other mm. similar brands with burger patties. 
Um, so it helps us when that happens because we can, um, uh, often those products are doing really well. So we can go to a burger, burger restaurant or a burger chain and say, hey, how's your Beyond Burger going? Yep, it's going great. Would you like to do a pulled pork or beef brisket alternative burger as well? And they're like, um, yeah, actually, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, and, and so the sell is actually pretty easy because it's been driven by the customer. And yeah. um, the, the fact there's other brands out there actually kind of helps in a lot of ways because our product's mm. complementary rather than directly competitive. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And I like, you know, I think there's, as I said before, there's such an amazing growth opportunity for the category and for this product in particular. Um, it's just, you know, you want to see it in more areas. So more people do stuff with it and they, yeah. then, then more people ultimately can experience it. And, um, yeah. okay. So do you, when it comes to just a little bit, I suppose, around the education of the product itself, are you finding that you're doing a lot to try and educate people on mushroom as a product? And so that they kind of have a, the trust level is, you know, they can maintain that trust level and, um, you know, is there, is there much around there just as a, you know, as a, as a marketing and a, as a play? Yeah. So, so yeah, taste texture number one, um, in, in terms of our brand positioning price is obviously important, but the price is what it is. Um, and then yeah, health is the, our research shows that that's the biggest driver in Australia. And so that's very much our positioning with mushrooms You know, mushrooms are very healthy. I think there's this burgeoning kind of mushroom trend going on at the moment where they're starting to become a little cool and interesting again, so yeah. we're sort of positioning the Fable brand at that kind of apex of this big meat alternative trend and this burgeoning mushroom trend and, uh, yeah, positioning ourselves as this kind of mushroom-based, whole food, uh, kind of yeah, clean label, uh, delicious, also healthy, reasonably priced. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the value proposition. I mean, that's hard to get all those messages in at once, but yeah. um, you've got to prioritise them and, and rank them and everything. But um, that, that's how we're trying to think about it. Yeah. Beautiful. Michael Fox, that's been a fascinating chat, mate. I really do love the product and, I, and, I enjoy, and I'm looking forward to seeing this, this brand grow and, and become mainstream out there because it's a, certainly a delicious product and I'm going to watch in, from afar and just watch how this uh, unfolds for you. I think it's really exciting. No, thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it. Yeah, really, really good chatting to you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Cheers, yeah. mate. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, mate.